it was Gordon McDonald who said that the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You don't have to be a Christian in order to build a sturdy home for the homeless or give food to the hungry or help or heal someone who is sick. But, McDonald quickly added, there is one thing that the church can do far better than anything in the world. And that is the church can show God's grace. It was Philip Yancey who said of grace that it is the world's best last word. John Newton famously wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Certainly many of us could give testimony that God's grace is amazing and astounding. It is marvelous and it is matchless. More than a couple of us have probably seen the acrostic where grace is simply described as God's riches at Christ's expense. Simply stated, grace is unmerited favor. It is doing something good for someone and that person has no prospect of being able to pay you back. Today we continue our study in the life of David and we determine that David is driven to display God's grace. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'll be reading all 13 verses of that chapter. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. 2 Samuel chapter 9, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 13. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he's in the house of Machir, son of Amael in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amael. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table 
like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. There was a question that had been drilled into the heart of David. Is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Apparently, David asked this question frequently to everyone he met up and down the palace hallway. Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? It would seem to me that David was driven by this question. He asked, is there anyone? He didn't put any parameters around it. He didn't make any specifications. He didn't say, is there anyone worthy or is there anyone deserving? Is there anyone famous? Is there anyone courageous? Is there anyone who can advance my calls? Is there anyone that can help my agenda? Is there anyone to whom I can be nice to only for them and years later to turn back the reciprocation unto me and be nice when I need it? No, David puts no parameters around it. He just asks for anyone. Is there anyone? From the house of Saul. Saul was David's predecessor. And even though it's true that Saul was insanely jealous of David, David never lost his respect for King Saul. Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? That word kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It's mentioned over 250 times in the Old Testament. It's a word that means loyal love. It is a love that is unending, unmerited, unconditional. Its New Testament counterpart is the Greek word agape. Agape love, God's love, unconditional love, love with no strings attached. That's the Hebrew word chesed. And David is asking the question, is there anyone in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, to whom I can show loyal love, to whom I can just be gracious towards with no strings attached? Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was the best friend of David. Jonathan was the son of Saul. But Jonathan quickly understood that he would not be the next king of Israel. He knew that the anointing had fallen upon his friend David. On more than one occasion, it is Jonathan that protected his friend David from his deranged dad named Saul. And before David ran for the hills. It was Jonathan who said to him, when you become king, and by God's grace, when all of the enemies are subdued, will you please make a promise to me this day that you will be kind to my descendants? And on that day, David made a pledge to his friend Jonathan. He promised Jonathan that he would be kind, he would be gracious to his children and his children's children. Our story comes 30 years after David made that promise.
for the last three decades, David had this promise in the back of his mind. For 30 years, he had been looking for an opportunity to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. And now David is king. The Philistines have been subdued. All the enemies of Israel have been put down. The ark of God is now in the city of God with the people of God. And David is pressed with the question. It has been drilled into his spirit. Is there anyone from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We are told that there was a leftover servant from the previous regime. His name, Ziba. We are told that Ziba had some insider information regarding David's question. So David called for Ziba, this former servant of King Saul. And he asked the very same thing. Is there anyone left over from the house of Saul to whom I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And Ziba said, there is one son of Jonathan. But if I were you king, I wouldn't worry about him. He's crippled in both feet. What Ziba was saying to his king is that there is one descendant of Jonathan, but he's a nobody. He's broken. He's blemished. He's cast aside. He is trash. He is an outcast. He's somebody that's been tucked away and stuffed away. He's a person who's been ignored for years. I don't think you need to worry about him. He he doesn't, even, he doesn't even bear me mentioning his name. I would just tell you, King, he's crippled in both feet. What Ziba did 3,000 years ago, you and I still do every day. We identify people based on their infirmity, their flaw, or their frailty. We talk about Tommy. You know the Tommy I'm talking about. That's the man that cheated on his wife. We mention Sally. You know Sally. She's the lying gossip at school. We talk about Charles. Charles is just a drunk. We make mention of Bill. You know the Bill I'm talking about. He's the man battling cancer. We talk about Steve. You know, the homosexual man that lives four doors down from you in your subdivision? We make mention of Dave and Sue. You know, that couple that lost their teenage son in that tragic car wreck about six months ago. We talk about individuals based upon their infirmity or their frailty, maybe their flaw, their failure. Maybe we define them by the tragedy that seems to cripple them. We do today what Ziba did 3,000 years ago. King, there is a son of Jonathan, but don't worry about him. He is crippled in both feet. The story of this son of Jonathan is given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 4. At that time, the young son was only about five years of age. It happened that fateful day when news got back to the palace that not only King Saul, but also Jonathan, had been killed in battle in the field of Jezreel by the Philistines. All the servants of the palace, they understood what would come next. The Philistines would then hunt down and track down any potential heir of the throne. 
So in haste, a nurse uh, grabbed up this young son of Jonathan. He's about five years of age. As she makes her way out the palace, she stumbles down the steps and she drops him. And by dropping him, he breaks his bones in his legs, ankles, and feet. The end result is that for life, he's crippled in both feet. By the time of our story, it's about 15 years after that event, the son of Jonathan is now in his early 20s. He had been pushed aside for a decade and a half. He had been forgotten. He had been ostracized. He had been marginalized and stuffed away. Ziba said, there is a son, but don't worry about him. Um, he's crippled in both feet. And David, overwhelmed with excitement, said, where is he? Well, King, uh, they put him in a place called Lodibar. What's interesting about that name, Lodibar, it technically means a God-forsaken wasteland. I mean, we're talking beyond the sticks. We're talking that this son of Jonathan was stuffed away in a place where no one would find him, where everybody would forget about him. He was in Lodibar. Nobody this day knows the precise location of Lodibar. But what's ironic is that the king knew exactly where Lodibar was. King David knew where Lodibar was located and he sent a royal entourage. He sent royal chariots to rescue this son of Jonathan and bring him back to the palace. Can you imagine how the son of Jonathan felt that day when he heard the thunderous sound of horses' hoofs and chariots coming over the horizon? Nobody ever came to visit him. Nobody had been there for 15 years. He had been lost. He had been shoved away. Nobody ever came to Lodibar to see him. Yet he looked out his window and there, there were the horses, the horses and the chariots. And on every chariot, there was the king's crest. How do you think he felt that day? He could have been afraid, thinking to himself, they found me and now they've come to kill me. He could have been angry. He could have said, you know, if it wasn't for that clumsy nurse, I wouldn't be in this condition. But the reality is, if it wasn't for the clumsy nurse, he wouldn't be alive today. Oh, he could have been entitled, feeling to himself, it's about time somebody recognized I got royal blood pulsating through my veins. It's been 15 years. It's about time somebody come and rescue me out of this God-forsaken wilderness. He could have felt entitled. He could have been embittered. He could have simply said, God, why did you let this happen to me? I was doing quite well as a five-year-old boy. I was playing with my tinker toys. I was doing everything that a normal five-year-old boy was doing. But you permitted this to happen to me. And now it's wrecked my life. And he could have been embittered toward God. I don't know exactly how he felt. But I know that the royal entourage convinced him he needed to go back and gain an audience with the king. When he came back, they plopped him in the throne room. And all of a sudden, the door opened and there was King David. King David had never met this son of Jonathan before. The son of Jonathan had never met the king either. 
but he knew what he was supposed to do. So in a very awkward, clumsy way, this man who was crippled in both feet bowed down to pay honor to King David. I can well imagine that David got down on his knees and lifted the head, looked him in the eyes, and said, Mephibosheth, is that you? The only person in this story who calls Mephibosheth by name is the king. Nobody else calls him by name. Everybody else calls him by his condition. He's a, he's a, he's a nobody who's crippled in both feet. But King David, David looked him in the eyes and said, Mephibosheth, is that you? Your servant, he replied. Mephibosheth, I am going to give you everything that belonged to your grandfather Saul. I'm going to give you everything that was promised to your daddy, my best friend, Jonathan. And you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth asked a question. Why do you notice a dead dog like me? The king doesn't respond to that, does he? He just simply calls for Ziba, the servant of Saul. And he says to Ziba, I am going to give your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his son, Jonathan. And you and your sons and servants will take care of everything for Mephibosheth so that he will never want for anything, for he will always eat at my table. And Ziba, the servant, said, I am humbled and honored. I will do whatever the king asks me to do. And we are told that Mephibosheth never left Jerusalem. He raised a family there. He had a son. All of his needs were provided for. And about three or four times in the sacred text, it reminds us that he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. This is an amazing story. It's a story about amazing grace. One of the things I love about the Bible is that God not only gives us doctrines to proclaim, but he also gives us doctrines portrayed. That whatever doctrine he gives us in proclamation, he shows us what that doctrine looks like in a portrait. That's exactly what he does here. God doesn't just tell us some stuffy teaching that we need to believe. He shows us what it looks like in a life-transforming kind of way. He does this for all of his doctrines. So take, for example, the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere located in the Bible. You don't find it from Genesis to Revelation. But you do find that glorious proclaimed doctrine portrayed for us so we can see it in vivid color. So in a place like the baptism of Jesus, we hear the voice of God the Father. We see God the Son come up out of the waters of baptism. We see God the Spirit descend upon him in the form of a dove. In that one snapshot, we have a divine selfie of God where God says, this is who I am, the Trinitarian God of goodness and grace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, Apostle Paul, in the opening chapter of the Ephesian letter, who gives us another portrait of the Trinity when he declares that God the Father, he has adopted you. He has chosen you from the very foundation of the world. And God the Son has redeemed you by the power of the blood of the Lamb, and God the Spirit has sealed you for his salvation as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. 
Once again, we see that portrait of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, a beautiful picture of the Trinity. We also hold dear that doctrine of creation ex nihilo, which means that God created everything out of nothing. And we see that portrayed in the opening chapters of Genesis, where God just simply says, let there be light. And light came running at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. For the creator had declared, let there be light, and light could not help but respond in obedience. And we see that doctrine of creation ex nihilo portrayed for us in the opening chapters of Genesis. Every doctrine that is proclaimed is a doctrine that is portrayed in the scripture. One of the doctrines that all of us hold very, very close to our hearts is the doctrine of grace. It is by grace that we have been saved. It's not by works, lest anybody should boast. We are saved by grace alone, in faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's how any of us are saved. And that doctrine of salvation by grace is not just something we proclaim, but it's something that's been portrayed for us perfectly in this story of 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to lift out just a, a few correlations between what we see in this story as it pertains to the amazing doctrine of God's grace and salvation to you and to me. First, that because of grace, salvation is granted by the king's kindness. Salvation is granted to you only because of the king's kindness. Salvation has not been given to you because somehow you've earned it, somehow you merit it, uh, somehow you deserve it. No, salvation is given to you simply because of the king's loyal love that he has for you. He just has loyal love for you because of a promise that he made to himself that he would seek and save the lost. And so God has saved you because of his kindness. If you're looking for anybody in the story that looks like you and looks like me, the answer is we all look like Mephibosheth. We are broken. We are blemished. We are crippled to the core. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that we are dead in our sins. So when Mephibosheth says to the king, I'm a dead dog, that's exactly right. All of us are completely and utterly spiritually dead before the Lord. There's no way we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and save us. The only way that any of us are saved is simply because of the glorious kindness of God Almighty. So we are saved by God's grace. What does that mean? It means that salvation has been granted because of the king's kindness. Secondly, I would say that it's because of grace that the king knows where you are. In this story, we are told that Mephibosheth was tucked away in Lodibar, a word that means a God-forsaken wasteland. And in this story, David knew exactly where Lodibar was located. Friend, the king of all kings knows exactly where you are. Some of you today may feel like you're in Lodibar. You may think as if you're in a place of abandonment by God. 
You may think that your marriage is in Lodibar. You may think that your children are in Lodibar. You may think your parents are in Lodibar. You may think that your employment is in Lodibar. You may think that your health is in Lodibar. You may think that you find yourself in a place of God-forsakenness when it comes to your relationships and when it comes to your health and when it comes to your money, when it comes to your employment. You may think to yourself, does God even know where I am? And the answer of grace says God knows exactly where you are. He always knows where you are, even if you are in Lodibar. The king knew exactly where Mephibosheth was. Can you imagine how eventually overjoyed Mephibosheth must have been when he heard the horse's hooves? And the chariots coming his way. And maybe this morning there's somebody listening to my voice. And you need to listen intently for the sound of the chariots over the horizon. Because your king, the king of all kings, Lord Jesus himself, he knows where you are. And maybe he's come just to make a special trip. To rescue you from what you think is a God forsaken place. The king knows where you are. The third practical implication I would draw is this, that because of grace, the king, he knows who you are. It's not enough that he knows where you are, but the king knows who you are. In this story, it is only King David who calls Mephibosheth by name. Everybody else calls him by his, by his frailty. Everybody else calls him by his accident. Everybody else says he's just a, a, a dude with that's crippled in both feet. But the king, he called him by name. Friend, I want you to know that King Jesus, he not only knows where you are, but he knows who you are. And King Jesus doesn't call you by your sin. King Jesus doesn't call you by your sickness. King Jesus doesn't call you by your mistakes. King Jesus doesn't call you by your skin color. King Jesus does not call you by your infirmity. King Jesus calls you by name. He knows you by name. He knows who you are. He knows everything about you. You're not just a number to him. You're not just a person to him. You're an individual to him. He knows you by name. Scripture says he, he knows you so intimately. He has the number of hairs on your head numbered. He knows exactly how you're doing. He knows where you are, who you are, how you are. He knows you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet from the inside to the outside he knows everything and he still loves you you may sit there and say but if the king really knew about the skeletons in my closet if he really knew about all my mistakes if he really knew about all the things I've done if he knew all the things that I thought if he knew all the things that have happened to me and I'm here to tell you the king does know and this king named Jesus, he knows and he still loves you. He calls you by name. Mephibosheth, is that you? I've been looking for you. And I'm so glad that I found you. Because of God's amazing grace, salvation comes to us by the king's kindness. It's because of grace 
that the king knows where you are even if you find yourself in Lodibar. And it's because of grace that the king knows who you are. He calls you by name, brother or sister. But let me mention the fourth and final point of application. Because of God's grace, because of the amazing grace of God Almighty, it is the king who extends eternal fellowship to you. We were told at least four times that Mephibosheth would always eat at the king's table. What's true in that day is also kind of true today. People only extended table fellowship to those that they accepted. What the king is saying to Mephibosheth is, I accept you. As flawed as you are, I accept you. As blemished as you are, I accept you. As broken as you are, you always have a place at my table. And friend, when King Jesus grants you salvation, what he's saying to you is that you always have a place at God's table. You always have a place of eternal fellowship. So we talk about eternal life that begins at the moment of faith. Eternal life, it is life without end. It is life that cannot be lost. You cannot lose eternal life, for if you lost it, it wouldn't be eternal. It is eternal life. It begins at the moment of faith. It continues for all of eternity. And King Jesus promises that you always have a place at the table. The king didn't call Mephibosheth broken. He called him blessed. It's not that he was sinful, he was saved. It's not that he was a wretch, he was welcomed at the king's table. Can you imagine with me when David rang the dinner bell for all of his children to come and eat, what it must have been like? I mean, David and all of his sons, they probably got there rather quickly, but there was always an, an empty chair. And that empty chair was always waiting on Mephibosheth. It took him a little while to get there, but he always got there. And if you listen closely, you can hear the crippled man just making his way down the hall, saying to the king, I'm coming. And the reason I'm coming is because of your kindness. Because you came to Lodibar and you called me by name. And you said there's always a place at your table for a wretch like me. David, king, I'm coming. Can you hear the crippled man as he makes his way to the table? You know, friend, I want to tell you that one day there will be another dinner bell that rings. Gabriel will be told to sound his trumpet. And the dead in Christ will be raised. And then we who are alive will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. And then according to the scripture, we will go to an eternal place with the Lord. And the Bible calls that the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine that there's a day coming when the dinner bell will ring. And when the dinner bell is, is sounded. And when Gabriel toots his own horn. And when the sound of the trumpet is played. That the dead in Christ will be raised. And those of us who are here will be caught up. And there will be a place at God's table for you and for you and for you. 
you and for you and for you and for you and for everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. Because when the king extends his grace to you, it is for eternal fellowship. Fellowship that cannot be broken. It was John R.W. Stott who said the only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. If grace offers you forgiveness, accept it by faith. Grace offers you a home in heaven, accept it by faith. Grace offers you eternal life, accept it by faith. Grace offers you a perfect relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you accept it by faith. The only function of faith is to accept what grace offers. And grace has offered you the king's kindness. And grace has come to where you are, even in Lodibar. And because of grace, the king calls you by name, not by your sin. And because of grace, the king extends table fellowship to wretched dead dogs like you and like me. Now I understand why John Newton simply proclaimed, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Friend, if you have received God's grace, then you are compelled to display God's grace to those that are around you. And this morning, I wonder, beloved, I wonder, Christian, is there somebody in your life who deserves and needs God's grace from you? Maybe it's uh, your spouse. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your sister. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's a classmate. Maybe it's a teammate. But if you have been shown the grace of God, you're compelled to shower the grace of God unto others. As we leave this place this morning, we don't just sit and bask in the glory of God's grace, but because we received it we go out and we give it to somebody who just doesn't deserve it and there's no way they can repay us back but that's what God has done for us if we have been shown grace we must shower grace unto others so this morning church I wonder is there anybody who needs to receive the grace of King Jesus. If you listen closely, you can hear the chariots. If you look closely, it has the king's crest stamped upon it. If, if, if you look around, you can realize that even though you may find yourself today in Lodibar, the king is on his way. And King Jesus has come to seek and to save you. I wonder. Is there anybody who needs to receive the grace of Christ? Maybe you have received it. I wonder this day, is there anybody in your life that you need to show God's grace to? Grace is not only something that we receive, 
But grace is something that we display to a watching world so they can know just how good King Jesus truly is. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We pray that if there's somebody here who does not know the good, loyal love of Christ, that today will be the day of their salvation. If there's somebody here who's received grace, but for whatever reason, it is really hard to show that grace to a family member, to a friend who has wronged us, to a person who stabbed us in the back. Lord, today I pray that you will help us not just to see grace, but to shower grace upon others. Maybe somebody needs to come and just kneel and pray or join the church. Whatever it is, you lead us. We respond in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name.